Monday, April 23rd, 2018, and this is episode 217 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, or almost always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Yeah, there's been a few times I haven't been here. Yeah, not many. Yeah, 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 yeah. but I'm here tonight. That, that's all that counts. For, for good or ill. That's all that counts. And by the way, mm. 31 days. 31. Until? The GDPR comes into effect, and the world as we know it <laughs> comes to an end. I cannot tell you uh, the the more and more emails I'm getting right now from various vendors and suppliers and consultants. Yeah, all the GDPR. I, I've even gotten e- emails from uh, from vendors telling me that I needed to do different, you know, certain specific things for the podcast to make it GDPR compliant. And did you? No. Dude, they're going to find us 4% of our revenue. <laughs> bring it. Bring it. <laughs> they're going to be uh, they're going to be sadly disappointed. <laughs> in in all honesty, I think there's a good 80% of companies going, let's just wait and see what happens and uh, see who gets fined first and then we'll figure out what we really need to do. Wait for I, some judgments to come down. Yeah, I, I I you know, unfortunately I think you're right. That's a really perilous position to take but you know it's something that i've been living but and breathing and uh, it's it's a it's a risk trade-off right you're, yeah, you're yeah. sort of going you know i'm not going to be you know as a company you could be saying i'm not going to be the one that gets caught so let's let somebody else get caught and figure out how much we actually need to spend because if you overspend on it it's just a waste of money and you know to executive eyes well that, that's certainly true and you may end up spending on things that you you may end up uh, uh not only overspending but spending on the wrong stuff and so you you end up still having to do a whole bunch of remediation yeah. so um, you know I, I think and, there is some and potentially like inhibiting a, a profit stream or yeah. you know messing up a business liner I mean there's it's such an unknown right now I think to so many companies that uh, I don't it, know it is uh, I, I you know I, I was just mentioned to you before we started recording that I started a, a Twitter thread that kind of went off the rails, but is, I think, a very good example of the, the, the widely, wildly, I should say, uh, varying interpretations of how the, the regulation applies and who it applies to and when it applies. And, uh, you know, it's been, there's been dozens, maybe hundreds of, of comments of, you know, different, different opinions. And these, by the way, are, are people who, in general, are probably those whose responsibility it is to comply with the GDPR in the first place. So so does this mean that the actual regulation is poorly written if there's that it, much it confusion is. out there? I, I will say, and I've you know, I've said this before, I think it is a very poorly written regulation. Now, I don't want that to be interpreted as me saying that the intention of the GDPR is bad, right? If you are a privacy-minded person in country, that the... the you know, the intentions of the GDPR 
seem good, right? The GDPR itself is not well written. It's at places contradictory. It's vague. It's, I mean, it's just not well written. And um, I mean, not not to say that like U.S. laws are the pinnacle of you know of, of literary devices but uh, well I, I think a lot of other countries in the world look at the u.s right now and look at the facebook debacle going on with cambridge analytica and are just agog that we have such loose privacy laws in the u.s yeah and it, it, it that, that is absolutely true i guess i'm i'm speaking more of just the way the law is constructed right mm, you know gotcha the, it's it's not it, like I said. It's just not well written. It's it's it goes on and on and on and on, and it's it's confusing to the point where people don't really have a good handle on you know, what they're supposed to do. And and you know some of the I think some of the vagueness was intentional because they were intending for you know to create something that was somewhat timeless that wouldn't have to be updated every now and you know constantly as technology changed and right and so you know from that perspective i get that but that's not really the the concern it's just but you know the the regulatory bodies could have also issued a bunch of guidance papers outside of the actual regulation yeah and they did to some extent and and uh, you know my from, from what i've been able to tell that is in many cases only made things more complicated um, and, you know, and, and I mean, it's just, it's a really, it's a really complicated environment because you have this law that was written by the European Parliament and you have all the different, it's, it's actually going to be enforced mechanically by the data protection authorities in all the different countries. And, and so you have data protection authorities in all these different countries uh, some more, you know, some being more aggressive than others, kind of putting out their own guidance, <laughs> and and you know, and, and then you got Brexit happening at the same time, and um, it's just a, it's a mess. I I um, I think companies are are str- are going to struggle for quite some time. Um, the lack of the lack of clarity on what you're actually supposed to do is, I think, creating a lot of churn in the industry because, you know, that the the objective for for data protection is almost in the eye of the beholder, based on your interpretation of what it takes to protect data. And, you know, on the one hand, that's a good thing, right? But on the other hand, when you have these complicated multi-part part, you know, multi-party relationships, you got one organization saying i think uh we need to do this and another one saying well no i think that's wrong you need to do something else so there's really no there's not a lot of clarity and the law itself actually encouraged uh, the creation of some kind of a um, compliance certification if you will and that never materialized well, this is go, why I go back to my earlier statement that I think a lot of folks are just taking a wait and see attitude and hoping they're not going to be the one that gets nailed by uh, the regulators first. Yeah, I, I think you're right, and I think that's a really perilous position, especially if you're a larger company that has, you know, has operations in Europe. Um, I, you know, I, but look, but I want to face the peril. <laughs> that's right. 
This is not the Castle Anthrax, though. <laughs> so, anyway, I should probably have said a long time ago that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. Including the preceding 20 yeah, that, that, that is a retroactive... Uh, this is a retroactive statement. Mm-hmm. Carries back to the beginning of the show. That's right. And applies you know, extraterritorially just like the GDPR. You do work for a lawyer, don't you? <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. All uh, right. Um, so getting into our stories. Tell couple, me a story, Jerry. A couple of good stories. First one comes from CSO, and the title here is Customers Describe the Impacts of the All Scripts ransomware attack. I think we actually covered this one a while ago. Back in January, a company named All Scripts got a got a case of the Sam Sams and <laughs> I like having a case in the Mondays. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much. I, I I gotta tell you by the way, just before you get into this, I, I'm reading a book right now on the air war in the Pacific in World War II. And I'm reading these excerpts of what it was like to be a defending Japanese soldier as the U.S. Navy and Navy aviation bombed the ever-living crap out of these islands they were on. And these guys were living in the caves and surviving on like a a ball of rice per day. And their descriptions sound almost exactly the same as the people had to put up with this outage. (laughs) I didn't know where you were going, but... uh, Yes, yes. So, uh, so Allscripts is a uh, is is the name might may imply is a software as a service provider specializing in a in kind of all things medical practicey. Uh, you know, so it'll help they'll help you run your your medic your your doctor's office. Uh, they have some uh, products that help with prescription uh, filling prescriptions and. And things like that. So they they had a, a ransomware attack, and they were out in total for about a week. And you know the 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 problem is that in many other contexts, you know, and uh, customers are are not you know terribly impacted. But in this particular cat, you know, this particular case, the customers were were doctors, you know, doctors' offices, and. Most of the doctor's offices, you know, if you read through the story, were were apparently, they had gone full hog automation. Like they, you know, they they switched over and they burned the manual bridges behind them. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know, they didn't have anywhere to go. And so they were kind of stuck. Um, Except for one. And there was one, um, apparently one practice who was a little skeptical of the the service and so they kept their um, their their old paper forms around and they ended up falling back to those but uh in, in any event the the story is less about the ransomware attack and more about the response and and kind of the lack of clarity around the communication that all scripts gave to their customers because all scripts uh you know they were they were trying to communicate well to their customers what was going on and then a couple of days i think it was uh 5 days after the incident started you know they they made an announcement to their customers oh we're back up <laughs> we're back online um but 
they weren't really back online. What they were actually saying was that apparently they had restored their data and the servers were back up and running. But as far as I can tell, and this is uh, this is an implication based on kind of the timeline, it sounds like they uh, they lost the user accounts or they lost the you know the customer accounts, and those had to be recreated. I'm guessing manually, just based on the timeline, it sounds like that was a, a separate kind of on a separate track from restoring the data. And so, you know, their customers were, were basically furious that the that the company was reporting that the systems had been restored, yet they couldn't they couldn't access them. Now, you know, when I started reading this, I'm like, oh, you know, here we go. Another another case uh, of a of a company screwing up the messaging. But you know, when you read the the message that all scripts actually put out I'm not all I'm not really sure how much more clear they could have been. And and so you know they so so this is their this is the the message they sent which caused all the uproar. Uh, since since our last update, all scripts PM and professional EHR systems in the East, Central Mountain and Pacific regions have been brought back online. We are currently working to restore permissions for all users. Once permissions are restored, users will have access to the core applications. We're continuing to work on the restoration of interfaces. And and so that sparked a firestorm. I respectfully disagree. Okay. I think that that is far too technical for the average customer to grasp the implications. Fair enough. And I think if they had taken a more generic response and said, we will be coming back in line in a phased approach, starting with X, and then Y at this projected date, and Z at this projected date. And when we hit Y, this will be available to you in a very clear way of saying, you know, you can view this, but you can't log in. Or I think they wouldn't better off. Because, you know, it's interesting, following up on what you said, a bunch of people started asking a bunch of questions. And, you know, they 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 didn't have very good answers for those questions customers asking. So if the customers are that confused, it's still incumbent on the on the company to communicate in a way that their customers understand. This still felt too technical, I think, to really communicate well, especially with doctor's offices who are very busy and have their own specialties and may not be that technical, especially because this is an outsourced cloud-hosted application. The folks interacting with this may not be that may not be IT folks. No, that's, that's a good point. And I, and I think the lesson, you know, the lesson for me in this is exactly what you pointed out, that even though to me on the surface, it looks like something that was clearly communicated, it wasn't received that way. And, and I think you're, I think you're on the right track. I don't know. I mean, uh, it, it seems like the message in this case should have been, you know, good news We've restored the data. Bad news. It's going to be a while before you can log back in. Yeah, we're making progress. And, and we, we see a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Kind yeah. of thing. And, and I think that that would have probably helped some. But I, I, you know, I think not only was the message not received well, I think the other probably main issue was that the you know, a lot of these Med, uh, medical practices apparently were losing a lot of money. They they were, I guess, not handling patients in some cases. 
Because all scripts was down? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, so there was a, you know, late in the article, they talk about how all scripts offered a 33% refund. And I don't know, it wasn't clear if that's like for a month or a year or, or what, but, um, you know, the, <laughs> the people interviewed for the article were pointing out that, you know, they lost far more money than the 33% they were going to get credited back on their, on their service account. And, you know, that's the, that's the downside of this. Um, yeah, we've talked a bit about this concentration of risk issue with cloud so, providers. Exactly. And I still think it's inevitable for business. I still think more and more customers are going to go or companies are going to go to this sort of thing. But this is a downside risk. And it then it begs the question, should you have a plan for this? Well, I guess it depends, right? It depends on how often your cloud provider likely is to go down and what is the impact of it going down. You could spend a whole lot of money having a backup plan and maintaining double books that has never, ever invoked. And is that a good use of resources? Right. Uh, you know, and they mentioned here, you know, the way you can help mitigate this is ask your vendor for their DR and recovery plans. Well, frankly, people lie when they answer those things, to be brutally honest. And a plan is only good until you actually try it. So it's a good question. But that answer is going to be crafted in such a way as to put their best foot forward. Mm-hmm to gloss over problems, uh, and how well is the average non-technical customer going to vet that DR plan and recovery plan to know if it's a good plan or not? Oh, oh, and by the way, they apparently did have something of a DR plan to be able to recover from this in the first place. Sure. So, I don't know. It's. I think we're going to see a lot more of these sorts of problems before, you know... I, yeah, I yeah. Agree. it's it's a tough it's a tough challenge, because I do think this sort of model is likely the way that most of the IT software and services industry is going, uh, and this is the downside to it. Yeah, you know, it, fr- from a from a customer on, on a customer by customer basis, it seems like it's much more likely that you would. You know, you would lose service in some other way, like your, you know, a backhoe found the, you know, the cable connection into your office or something like that would, that would keep you out for, keep you down for a while. And so, you know, it seems, it seems intuitive to me that a given practice should have some kind of a backup plan, in a manual backup plan, um, you know, especially if you're working on, you know, health safety type, you know, type stuff, um, uh, you know, uh, obviously not everybody <laughs> agrees with me. So anyhow, uh, point point of this one is communicate really clearly. Otherwise, you're going to ha- have Steve Reagan writing a report about you. <laughs> uh, all right. Next uh. next story comes from Info Security Magazine. And the title here is Atlanta City Splurges $2.7 million in ransomware aftermath. So we talked about this story a couple of times. You know, there's not a ton of detail about the the actual attack uh, even even today. And that's a little disappointing. Hopefully we'll get more insight later. But uh, at the time, the, the ransom apparently was $50,000 in Bitcoin. 
However, in the uh, <laughs> in the ensuing aftermath, apparently the, the the city of Atlanta spent a whopping two point seven million dollars in responding to this incident, and that apparently included eight separate emergency services contracts, including one from uh, SecureWorks, one from Ernst & Young, uh, a couple from private, uh, unnamed private companies. So, you know, it, it, it kind of goes back to the, you know, the, the ounce of prevention is worth the pound of cure thing, right? That's a, that's a crap load of money uh, that they, they burned. And, it's not entirely clear to me if that any of that $2.7 million was spent on kind of sketching out more systemic improvements or was it all, you know, actual just trying to get the lights turned back on. Right. As opposed to, you know, preventative measures or new services or new right. blinky boxes inserted into the environment. Right. Nothing I've seen either has indicated any sort of, cyber insurance involved with the situation either they could don't know but nope i've not heard anything it's it's been a little like i said it's been a little disappointing that we haven't heard anything i i mean given that they are a public institution i've got to imagine that at some point it's it's gonna have to be released the details will have to be released but but i gotta say it's a really tough call because the, the the article goes on to talk about should they have just paid the ransom? Hindsight's always 50-50. Or, sorry, 2020. <laughs> it's late. It's Monday. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about the $50,000 in Bitcoins, which, you know, probably changed moment by moment from 42000 68000 to, you know. $27. Big, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, if you speculate on that, you could just say, all right, tell you what, we're going to pay you. We're just waiting for the right time in the market. Yeah. It's the ransomware uh, arbitrage market. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, they talk about one guy who's the CEO of a web security company, High Tech Bridge. And he argued, quote unquote, controversially, that in this case, it may have been better to pay the ransom. Well, it's easy to say in hindsight. It's really tough, especially if you're a public organization, you have an ethical bound duty to certain things. And, you know, it's... I, I, so at I that don't point, think that you're, de- you're contributing to the problem. Right. And I don't think that that debate is really that settled. I, I, I'm not saying there isn't time where it might make sense, but I think it's really tough for a third party to make that call for yeah. another organization. Yeah, because you don't have all the facts that uh, of the specific right. incident. Um, I, I, I certainly agree with that. And I, you know, it, it, there's no guarantee that even if they did pay... They wouldn't just be out the money and still have to go spend two point seven million dollars. Sure, but you know, I I will say just and the, just as a local, you know, local person in Atlanta, and I don't have any insight at all into what was going on in the response. But just having watched the local news and reading this article and some others, it it seemed like the response was very haphazard and they were kind of grasping, you know, for a, for a, a, you know, a life preserver. (laughs) And, and I, I, part of me wonders, you know, how much of this $2.7 million was, you know, like just get the people out here and we'll figure out what they're going to do later. Right. Just do something. (laughs) Right. 
Let's get started and then we'll figure out what you're doing later. Mm-hmm. So, Which I think goes to, yet again, it'd be good to have a plan ahead of time that you execute on. Exactly. And a well-practiced and, and well-understood plan. Yeah. The other, the other thing that, that struck me, and again, I don't have a lot of insight into why this was, and I know we did talk about this, but you know, they turned off a lot of stuff. I, and I don't know yeah. if it was proactive or if it was reactive or, you know, if it actually went down as a result of the the breach. But, I mean, they shut down all sorts of uh, of IT infrastructure in the city of Atlanta. And uh, um, I so, I mean, maybe they have a maybe they had a plan and that plan was, you know, broadcast over the loudspeakers turn it all off <laughs> pull the cords <laughs> you know i i don't know but um i it just it doesn't seem like the response you know fit was proportional to the problem i guess is yeah i hear you so yeah, anyway, it's, plan uh, but but we miss we have we're missing so many details yeah yeah i, I agree i agree so it's easy it's easy to armchair quarterback but mm-hmm Anyway, maybe we'll find out more later. Okay, so moving on to our next story. The title is here. <laughs> this, is, this is a sad one. Um, it's from Ars Technica. The title is, When you go to a security conference and this mobile data, or this mobile app leaks your data. Wah, wah, wah. So this, it was interesting coming on the heels of the whole uh, uh, Panera Bread fiasco. This is not unlike that. The RSA Security Conference. Did I say Security Conference? Yes, I did. RSA Security <laughs> Conference. Um, that had a, has a mobile app, and some enterprising young man uh, was apparently playing around with that app, uh, and you know, just I guess testing it, and and realized that uh, the API calls that the app was the mobile app was making. Uh, don't work didn't didn't really work in a secure manner you know you could you could um, if you had a login id you could request an xml file back and and i guess that was in the form of an sqlite database which was encrypted right but that you but then you could make another call for the password <laughs> to decrypt the database which had um had details on i guess it was only 114 people which allegedly were speakers as far as i can tell so i guess the point here is that this sort of stuff can happen even to you know to security companies and security conferences with people who should know better and and this is a this by the way is an example of you know of a of a vendor it's a vendor screw up but i'll tell you I don't know why we have this mindset that a security company does its own internal corporate security well. Almost every security company I've worked for did not spend much on its own IT and its own security. And and that product line or consultants or whatever, they're billable resources. They're not spending them on internal, right? So this becomes a PR issue more than anything. And this mobile application was built by a third party, probably contracted by the marketing department. So when you look at how many layers removed from any sort of actual security uh, technical folks, it doesn't. It's funny because it's security con or it's noteworthy because it's a security conference. But I bet this is incredibly common. Sadly, 
Oh, you just I'm got sure a lot of security watchers poking at this. I'm sure it is. Uh, That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, this is probably something that the uh, and the company's name is Event Base. I'm gonna guess that they they probably have a um, they probably have a stock solution around this. And it's, oh, right, yeah. You know, it's probably something that's been hanging around as a problem for a long time, and this is just something that you know, fell into the scope of somebody who knew how to, you know, knew what to look for, and 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 here we are. Um, you know, but you know, fortunately, I don't think any of the data. It doesn't seem like the data was particularly sensitive or voluminous. So, uh, but you know, point is, it it. It can happen. It can happen to anybody, and you know, it's this is like like we talked about two weeks ago. There's not a there's not a good silver bullet. No, you know, you you can't go you can't go to you can't send a company like Eventbase or the last I think it was twenty four seven AI or I forget the other one. You can't just send them a a, a spreadsheet and have them re- return right. it and, and expect yeah. you know oh be able to make a determination that oh yeah this this vendor is secure yeah so the question would be something like do you do static and dynamic code analysis the answer yes <laughs> that's right okay they they did it great right. <laughs> moving on okay send me your last six months of reports and the remediation tracking of these issues and the internal tickets that were open to solve it no they're not going to do that that's right and even if they did, it's still. Mm. No, you're right. You're right. Third party risk management gives me the eye twitch this week. <laughs> it's getting more complicated. You know, it, it's. And I don't. I don't have a better. I don't have a good answer, which is, which is the problem too. It's just. I think. I think I'm. I'm basically raging against the false sense of security of these vendor questionnaires. I think they're nearly worthless. Yeah, well, I mean, you could always ask for a sock too, because that's way better, right? <laughs> Show me how you match up to the NIST cybersecurity framework. <laughs> Tell me how you stop the MITRE attack framework. That's right. If you were a car, what kind of car would you be? Wait, wrong, wrong question. No, that, that's yeah. yeah. What's your biggest? What's your biggest fault? Yes. Oh no. Um, so moving on to our, our last story for tonight. And yes, I, uh, I, you know, Matlock is calling. So uh, title uh, comes from Wired. And the title here is Inside the Unnerving Supply Chain Attack That Corrupted Sea Cleaner. Sea Cleaner, not CC Cleaner. I got it right this time. Good job. I know. It's the little things. <laughs> uh, so, so this story comes uh, after a presentation given by the CTO of Avast. And Avast is the company that bought the company named uh, Piriform. And Piriform was the company who made SeaCleaner. And and so the, the talk was about the kind of the, the trials and tribulations of what happened in this breach. And so that was, it was, you know, pretty, pretty insightful. Yeah, very cool article. So the, um, and, and, you know, we don't see enough of this, to be perfectly honest. And now I think... The specific facts of the the case lended itself to this being made public because, you know, um, Avast, in my view, had an opportunity to throw 
you know, the, the former company that really no longer exists under the bus, and, you know, and, and, and kind of come up, you know, come away from this looking, looking good. And, you know, like I said, I, I, I praise them for the transparency because I think we can all learn from it. But anyhow, the, the way it went down was uh, the, the, the attackers uh, logged into a developer workstation at Pureform prior to the acquisition. So this is months before Avast, and I don't know if it was months before it was announced or months before it was closed. I would assume it was months before it was closed. It could have been announced. That's not clear. Timing's not clear on that. But in any event... Um, one, one thing I want to say on that is developer workstations are a special kind of dangerous because they <laughs> yes, often need they local admin. They often ask to remove a bunch of security tools that gets in the way of them doing work. Like, for instance, a common AV platform will typically uh, make compiling and building an application grind to a halt. Well, not a halt, but make it much, much slower. So 95% of the time I've dealt with developers, there's usually some sort of negative impact by security tools that asks them to uh, causes them to start asking to remove security tools. So highly sensitive environment, less security tools present, and they have admin rights. Right. Scary. What's what's uh, what's not to love about that, right? So so anyway, uh, to make it even better, the, uh, the the developer workstation was apparently running TeamViewer because you know why not? Well, yeah. And uh, and and so the um, the attacker apparently was able to log in with credentials. So so it's not known how the attacker got the credentials to log into TeamViewer. Uh, but it's you know presumed that it could have it, it could have been through password reuse, um, or maybe it was through a fish. I mean, it's you know really very difficult to say. But he, they don't speculate on on that part. Uh, so so the attacker uh, gained a foothold on this initial workstation, did a little bit of lateral movement, and then installed this piece of malware called ShadowPad, which apparently uh, it was. You know, it's been around for a while. Common, uh, you know, APT style Trojan, uh, and you know, had had uh, you know, uh, keylogger type functionality and other, you know, kind of all the the normal, the normal badness. Uh, and then they went quiet apparently for for a long time. And then uh, two weeks after the after acquisition. This that was apparently when the attackers actually started their work. They they then started um, tainting the CCleaner binaries, and and again, it's not entirely clear if they uh, if they updated the source before it was compiled or if they did it after it was compiled. That all that is not uh, not clear, not described in the article. But you know they had a, they had access to developer workstations, so it's not hard to you know, it's not hard to, to use your imagination on what exactly happened there. Can I make a recommendation? Sure. Going forward, anytime we talk about these sort of like deep supply chain attacks, can we have bumper music of Tainted Love? Ooh, that's a good idea. Okay, carry on. That's a, that's a really good idea. Um, so, so anyhow, uh, the, the bad guys... Uh, it tainted the download. Download got published and was downloaded 
2.25 million times. Now, to to uh, Avast's credit, they acted pretty quickly, and they, within three days, were able to obtain access and, and control over the command and control system that the malware delivered with CCleaner used. And um, through that, they found that about 1.65 million systems had actually installed the the infected uh, you know, the infected binary. Do we know how uh, Avast found out that this malware had been embedded? Yeah, well, that is actually the the subject of some debate because there was yeah. um, there is you know, there, at the time at least there was some claim that Cisco Talos had had detected it, and then there was right another group called Morphosec, and then and then I, I I don't link to it here, but I remember that there was an assertion by Avast that it was not Cisco Talos that found it. It was somebody else. And I was, I'm not clear if that meant it was Mofasek or so somebody else found it and apparently brought it to the attention of Avast. Gotcha. Now, who exactly found it apparently is the subject of some debate. So probably a nation state. Uh, obviously. If we, if we could blame nation states for everything, we might as well, you know, say they all do all the good stuff too. Obviously, absolutely, probably. Um, so, in, in uh, again, in in the analysis of the command and control server, they found out that of the 1.65 million infected systems, they pushed the 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 same shadow pad uh, malware to only 40 systems. And those 40 systems apparently were owned by 11 different uh, tech companies. So the embedded malware called home to some sort of command and control set up by the bad guys. Correct. And once they kind of got an inventory who was calling home, they only went after 40 specific targets. Correct. At Interesting. 40 specific PCs at 11 different targets. Interesting. So, so kind of a broad, almost almost like a watering hole attack, turning into a targeted uh, intrusion. Yeah, yeah. It's like mm -hmm. putting out a big net, you know, reeling it in, look looking through what you caught, and then just targeting the specific that you know specific uh, victims. Now, they they don't they don't talk about in this story, you know, who who those eleven companies were or why they think they were targeted there is an assertion in here that it you know was perpetrated likely by a chinese speaking actor simply because the 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 malware that was used was apparently written in a chinese language we all know that that's not a great thing but you know, apparently the same piece of malware and some of the other tactics were seen attacking a a russian finance ministry so you know who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Could be the you know, I, I don't know. Um, could be could be China. I mean, could be Luxembourg. Could be. I mean, could be Luxembourg, right? Could be you. Could be me. Probably not though. Mm -hmm. I got yeah, that you're G too busy. GDPR stuff to worry about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so um. So anyway, the 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 CTO of Avast, you know, his point in all in explaining all this was 
the process of due diligence when companies buy another company probably needs to mature quite a lot because when when you're you know when you are acquiring another company you you're you know you're not only good buying the good stuff you know you're buying whatever latent crap is in their in their network and i've seen this by the way on uh, i've i've seen this particular kind of problem you know not not to this scale right but i've seen similar things in the past and this is a a relatively common problem when you buy a smaller company that may not you know maybe what we like to call entrepreneurial in their security controls <laughs> No, it's a very real thing, especially if the first thing you do is connect your networks or something like that. It's Yeah. If I can if I can make a recommendation, do not connect your active directory forests with an acquired company ever. It's but, no, no. But Jerry, no. they've got to be able to log in. No and no. But Jerry, they gotta authenticate. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, someday I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book. <laughs> I probably won't be able to remember anything by then, but uh, yeah, well, yeah, well, it. But this is a tough one, and you know, I've I've also seen sort of the flip side where uh, divestitures of companies and how do you cut them off and when do you? People don't think through any of the security or technical implications. All this stuff's written in contracts by lawyers and financial folks who aren't the least bit concerned about the technical issues, but it poses real risk. Yeah, divestitures. That's a that's a very good point because a lot of times they'll um, you know the the divested employees will will operate with um, you know, the the former company's IT assets for some period of time and mm -hmm. yeah, that's a good that's a really good point. So. And uh, it's unless you really focus on this stuff and build a build a budget and a project plan around this stuff, it usually just kind of floats by in the background. And well, you know, we'll just see what happens. Roll the dice. Right. Right. Well, but anyway, I I did appreciate this article, and I'm glad that that they talked through this stuff. And I, for my own personal selfish reasons, I'd love for more companies to come out and talk deep about what happened and why and what their response was and help us all learn from it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it, it, it it's gotta be very uncomfortable for a company to, to do this, you know, because it's, it's kind of airing your laundry. And, you know, I, I know that the, the average company's, you know, legal counsel and whatnot probably <laughs> strongly advises against such things. But from a you know from from an outsider's perspective, and and from a you know the from from my perspective at least, this kind of this kind of you know not necessarily full disclosure, but this kind of disclosure, I in my view at least restores some amount of trust, like that you know okay they understood what happened, and you know and and I presumably they've they've made some you know, some significant changes to learn from this and they're contributing back to the you know to, to the knowledge of the industry at large and all that's good stuff so um, I, I commend them and like you said I hope more you know more companies do the same so anyway Agreed. that is um, that is the show for this evening and this week I appreciate everyone's uh, 
everyone's attention and thank you very much to our patreon donors uh and you can find links to the stories we talked about on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org you can follow mr callet on twitter at lurg you can follow me on twitter at malicious link you can follow the show on twitter at defensive sec and uh with that i think we will talk again next week hey and by the way we'll be at b-sides atlanta oh that's right that's um two weeks i guess right it is two weeks sweet awesome indeed so if you're there and you're one of our five listeners come say hi that's right (laughs) but aside from that thanks everybody have a great week you guys are awesome take care Bye. bye